The Pharisees were people who they, they saw the laws that God gave the Jews in the Old Testament, and there were a handful of them. And they were very strict about following those laws to the letter. And we should. We should obey God. But not only that, they took those laws and they added all kinds of other rules and instructions that people had to follow. Some of them that weren't even in the Bible. And, they, and if you didn't follow all their rules, but well, you were in their cool club. And they would come down on you and they would uh, per, uh, make fun of you and persecute you some and give you a hard time. And uh, So this was the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees, you might remember, ran into a lot of conflict with Jesus. Because as Jesus was teaching, Jesus was constantly reminding them of his most important rule. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And it is equally important is love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was constantly pointing out to the Pharisees, like, they kind of missed the boat on the love thing. You're missing that. So they didn't like Jesus very much for, for that reason and other reasons. And so it was actually the Pharisees who plotted against Jesus to have him crucified. Saul was a Pharisee. Second tidbit of information. The third little tidbit of information is this. Um, uh, as a Pharisee, one of Saul's highest objectives was to keep the Jewish law uh, pure. And, and he wanted the Jewish people to ascribe to the rules and follow them as close as they could. And, and he saw Christianity as a threat to that. And so he was constantly doing everything he could to shut that down. Uh, Saul was on a mission to destroy the church. That's what you need to know about Saul. When we first meet him in Acts chapter 9, he is on a mission to destroy the church. And he's not just this vigilante mob leader. Like, he's not just going out and doing crazy stuff with a mask on. He's actually like a government-sanctioned employee who's going out. It says he's got letters uh, from the Jewish government uh, giving him permission to extradite people from their homes if they're not willing to comply. And, and if they don't renounce their faith in Jesus, that he can take some serious action with them, including executing them. That's, that's a big, big, big deal. And so that's the context where we, where we find Saul in Acts chapter 9. Okay, you got the background? You with me on that? We're going to actually get into the book, let it teach itself. So Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, it is okay. We got it on the screen behind me. But here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. And he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Synagogues were kind of like uh, their church gatherings. And so each village or city might have had a synagogue where they would meet. And so he got letters to go to those synagogues. And so he found, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. We talked about all things with Saul. Let me talk about this phrase, the way. I don't know if you've noticed, but up to this point in the book of Acts, no one has been called yet a Christian. In fact, that, that phrase, that title doesn't come along until a little bit later in the book of Acts, and we'll get there in a few weeks. Instead, uh, these people, they didn't feel like they had started a new religion. They didn't feel like they were any different than the Jews. In fact, they would have considered themselves Jews. Jews who had recognized the Messiah and that Jesus was he, and that they would have faith in him and they would follow his line of thought and his line of teaching. For the people who were outside of what they called the way, looking into that, it became a, a, a big division thing. Like, what, what they think that they're special? Why do they call themselves uh, the way? Well, the way uh, might, it probably came from something that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus called himself the way, this was like the whole philosophy that the, the Jesus followers live by. Many people that belonged to the way had scattered. They'd left the city of Jerusalem and they'd gone all over the place. Uh, if you might remember from last week, after this guy Stephen was stoned, after he was executed, the believers in Jerusalem, they scattered. And one of the places a lot of them went was a city called Damascus. 
And Saul is going to go root them out. You left Jerusalem? I got to find you. I can find you wherever you are. And that's where we find him. He's got letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus and find people who are followers of the way. Verse 3. Let's keep reading. He says, it says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. Well, talk about getting a message from God. <laughs> you're like walking down the road and all of a sudden this bright light comes and you're hearing a voice from out of nowhere. And it hits the nail right on the head with what you are doing in your life right then. He gets this voice from God. You, you know that feeling that you maybe have had where uh, maybe, maybe you're saying something about something that you should have said, shouldn't have said. Or maybe you were supposed to be keeping a secret and you accidentally were talking about it. And you had this feeling like you're being watched. And you're like... They're standing right behind me, aren't they? Right now. How long have you been standing there? Like, that's kind of what goes on with Saul right here, except to the extreme. He is actively pursuing persecution of Christians. He's going everywhere and out of his way to tell people to stop preaching that Jesus rose from the dead, to stop going around and saying, I have faith in Jesus, to stop saying that Jesus appeared to me, stop teaching what he taught, and then boom, this bright light. Hey, Jesus, how long have you been standing there? Right? Saul is stunned, and just keep reading, his friends are stunned too. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. That must have been weird. So Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Saul spends three days now after this big event on the road to Damascus and he just, he is absolutely stunned. He goes into this fast. He's not eating, he's not drinking, and he's basically in solitude. Now, first of all, just the, just the recognition of the fact. Take a second. Imagine if right now, suddenly, you lost your sight. You go blind. That in itself is enough to be pretty depressing, right? Man, like, am I ever going to be able to see again? But bigger than that, he's like, this Christianity thing, this Jesus followers, the way thing, there must be a lot more to it than I've been given it credit for. In fact, Jesus has spoken to me, but I've been doing terrible things to people who believe in Jesus. I deny that he rose from the dead. I've even been killing his followers. And so while he's still in this state of shock and contemplation, we kind of pause his story here, and then the author of Acts, Luke, he takes us to another little place in Damascus, to another, another area where we meet another, another character who's living in Damascus. We meet a guy named Ananias, and we're going to kind of skip down on the text a little bit. I'll just summarize it for you. Basically, Ananias is a Christ follower, and he's living there in Damascus. It's, it's possible that he had even run away from Jerusalem to try to get away from people like Saul. Word that Saul was coming had come to Damascus, and so the believers there, we're a little bit, as you can imagine, anxious about that. So then God comes to this guy Ananias with another message. He's just had a message for Saul, and he comes to Ananias with another message, and he says, I want you to go over to this house, and I want you to have conversations with Saul. Naturally, Ananias is like, uh, I'd rather not, God. Um, like, I heard what he does to people like me, and I'm really not interested in that. God replies to him in, in verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go. I love that, just that. God's like, uh, no. <laughs> Go. This man is my chosen instrument. You hear that? I want to read it again because I kind of rushed through it. This man is my chosen instrument 
to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes. God lets Ananias in on a very important secret. And that is that God has marked Saul. He's got a mission for him. This man with blood on his hands, this man who rejected the name of Jesus, God says, if he's willing, I'm going to use him to change the world. Up to this point, the message of Jesus has only been shared with Jewish people, mostly in the city of Jerusalem. The Gentiles, uh, I mean, the Jews had kind of a mindset that there were only two types of people in the world. There were Jews, and then there were Gentiles. The word literally translates nations or the nations. So it's like, you're with us, or you're not with us. And we all kind of are that way to some degree, right? We, we all kind of have our crew and then the rest of the world. And so another thing that you need to know about Jews, though, especially Jews like Paul, who are so zealous about the law and about Judaism, they were really, really racist against anyone who was not a Jew, especially specific Gentile groups. But they had phrases for them, like they would call Gentiles things like dogs, right? We, does that sound familiar in our culture? Yeah. And so this group of people. So here it is. You've got Saul, the super Jew, is chosen by God to be the guy who's going to take the message of Jesus, which he hates, to the Gentile world, which he'd probably rather have nothing to do with. You could not have picked a worse person for this job. But God's got a plan. There's, when you look at this, this thing that God's asking Saul to do, I mean, it, it would be like asking Ted Cruz to start campaigning for Bernie Sanders, right? It'd be like asking uh, the UNC Tar Heels to paint Coach K's face in the middle of the floor at the Dean Dome. Like, this is, this is like not, this is not congruent. This is not going to work. I've heard someone say this is like asking a member of the KKK to become the president of the NAACP. Think about what the implications of what God has in mind. This isn't about a change. This is about a transformation, like something big has got to happen in Saul. And God believes that he's up to it. Verse 17, we catch up on the story. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it and he placed his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Something happened to Saul that day. I want to call it a transformation. After three days of being blind and reflecting on what he'd experienced and, and fasting and allowing his body to get physically weak, he decided he'd been wrong about Jesus. He'd been wrong about the whole Jesus thing. The helper, the Holy Spirit, shows up. I believe that helped him a lot with the transition and the transformation. And, he, and like every other conversion experience in the book of Acts, we see Saul doing what every new believer is commanded to do. He gets up and he's baptized. Transformed. What goes on there? Let, let's keep reading this. As the story wraps up, uh, the second half of verse 19 says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Hold up. Don't rush through that. Did you hear the point of his sermon? That Jesus is the Son of God. This is Saul, the Christian killer, is now preaching this message. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, 
Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? That's one of my favorite sentences in the book of Acts. This guy was raising havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name. And hasn't he come here to take them prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Transformation. Something happened here. Not only was there a transformation in Saul that made him different, this transformation was something that made Saul the opposite of what he was before. Now, if you're not familiar with Saul, maybe uh, you're fairly new to church or Christianity or you just kind of haven't, haven't caught up with what's going on and who Saul is, why is he important, why is it look everybody else seems to know what's going on with this guy. Let me fill you in. Let me tell you who Saul is. Saul is a guy that virtually every Christian in the world, in the history of Christianity, has either talked about, quoted, or read something that he wrote. Saul. Saul eventually becomes, I said he had two names, Saul and Paul. Saul eventually becomes the famous Apostle Paul. Saul becomes the greatest single Christian missionary to ever live. He travels thousands and thousands of miles around the Mediterranean region, establishing new churches in different communities, some of them Jewish communities, some of them completely not Jewish communities, some of them that threatened his life for simply bringing up the idea that there was only one God. Remember, this is in the time of the Roman Empire, where, where uh, either pluralism or polytheism was just all the rage. And for this guy to come in and say, there is one God, and he has sent us a savior. Let me tell you about him. We're going to talk more about his missionary journeys in another week. Thousands and thousands of miles. Paul ended up writing some instructions, uh, instructions uh, in the form of letters to these churches that he helped to establish. And he did that for a long, long time, uh, decades. And as he does that, these letters are collected. And, and they still survive today in about 13 books in the Bible. Books like Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, the, the books to, to Timothy, uh, the, books, uh, the books to Titus. These are, these are amazing works of, of literature that not only are good to read and give us some insight on the quote-unquote religion side of Christianity, but they have become the bedrock of Christian belief. You know, Paul, to raise the bar just one more time, has become, outside of Jesus himself, the single most prominent founder of Christianity. Paul, the guy who set out to kill Christians. Transformation. Saul's transformation from a legalistic Pharisee who was on a mission to destroy the church to the single most influential founder of Christianity is nearly unbelievable. And it's no wonder why people started calling him Paul after that. Hey, would you want to go by your old name? <laughs> it's kind of neat because I see the symbolism in it too, that, that Saul, the old man, was gone. And this new guy, Paul, steps in his place. And so to honor that transition, actually, from here on out, as we talk through the book of Acts, I'm going to refer to this guy as Paul. This is Paul because this man has changed. Uh, what happens in Paul uh, is amazing. And I've just got to ask this question. What happened? What happened in Paul's life to cause such a dramatic transformation? Well, here's the thing. It's no secret. Uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, you know, get some as seen on TV device that was going to save his life in you know, five minutes or less. It wasn't like some self-help, self-help class they took at the local community college. It wasn't that at all. This is something very basic and fundamental happened, and it's something that Paul talks about all the time as he writes and we read about in the letters that he wrote. And this is what it was. Saul learned that God's love brings us grace through Jesus. I want to say that again. Saul learned that God's love brings us grace through Jesus. And you look at that sentence, you're like, hold on, like, that's what changed Saul? 
to Paul. That's what made this huge transition happen between uh, the hateful uh, murderer of Christians to the person who leads the church into the entire new era. You know, skeptics of Christianity uh, have often used the story of Saul's conversion as a place to begin to poke holes in Christianity. You might be actually someone in the room today who's had a lot of skepticism about Christianity or questions or doubts about it, and, uh, and you're not alone. And a lot of really wise and scholarly people have set out to, uh, to disprove it. And this place where Saul is converted and becomes what we are now going to call Paul is a place where skeptics have tried to poke holes in Christian faith. And it kind of makes sense because there are two really big events that you could, if you could defame one of those events, it would really damage the credibility of Christianity. And that's the resurrection of Jesus and the conversion of Saul. Because these two men uh, were bedrock for the faith of what Christianity becomes. And so people have set out to do that. One of those uh, guys who did that is, is a scholar named uh, Lord, Lord George Littleton. Uh, L- Littleton was an Oxford scholar who was also ended up being a, um, a member of parliament in England in the mid-1700s. And he wasn't a Christian. And he set out to kind of disprove Christianity based on the idea that Saul's conversion was a hoax. That at best, maybe if there was a man named Saul who became this guy called Paul and he did all this, that he didn't do it because of some radical transformation in his life, but he did it for some sort of personal gain. People have said this a lot about the apostles, even about Jesus, that, no, this is people who are trying to get rich off of a book deal or something. You know, he's just trying to get their name out there. And so he sets out to kind of defame Paul's name. Uh, His theory was that if there were such a man as Paul, his conversion was a hoax, that he wasn't actually changed, but that he faked it all for personal gain. So I dug into Littleton's research in his story this week, and I found a book. You can, you can Google it. It's kind of hard to find, but I found it finally uh, and, and, and read that Littleton came to some pretty interesting realizations. He said that converting to Christianity for personal gain makes no sense because what it actually did for Paul was put him in the crosshairs of the very powerful Jewish leadership of that day. He had done a lot to build his reputation and his prestige among those Jewish leaders. I mean, just think about who he is. This is a guy who uh, came up as a Pharisee. He worked his way into a position where he had these letters to go to the synagogues and drag out the Christians. He had worked hard to get to that position, and the more that you study his life, you more will realize that's true. And for him to convert to Christianity would be to throw all that away. The prestige, the position, the power. He'd worked so hard for a lifetime to become the Pharisee that he was, and that would have been gone. Uh, Also, that if he traveled... That as he traveled, and as you look at his story, he never gained anything physically, wealth-wise. He never got rich off of people. He even wrote in his letters, you should support the people who teach you the gospel, except not me, because I don't want it ever to be said that that's why I teach you. And so Saul was what, or Paul is what we call a tent maker um, now, uh, because he actually was a leather worker, and he worked on tents, worked, and worked on, in canvas and things like that. And today, if you find a, a preacher or a teacher of the Bible Uh, who has another job where he makes his living. You call that a tent maker. We get that whole phrase because Paul was like, I'm not going to be put in that boat. Littleton digs in a little more and he came to this conclusion. He says, there's no rational reason for Paul to have chosen to follow Jesus. Maybe the other apostles had some kind of loyalty to Jesus, which which explained why so many of them were willing to risk their lives and, uh, and, and lose all their reputation. Maybe they were so far in, they just couldn't turn around. But for Paul, he was sitting pretty. He had everything he needed in the world. Why the change? As Littleton studied the life of Paul, hoping to find that it was untrue, what he found instead was the same thing that Paul found. He discovered that God's love brings us grace through Jesus. And grace changes everything. And George Littleton became a Christian, by the way. He was convinced. 
Before the road to Damascus, Paul had been trying to earn his way to God's love. That was the whole MO of the Pharisees. Follow the rules, stay in line, wipe your nose, keep everything clean and in order, and anything that seems to go awry from that and kick it out of your life. He was trying so hard to earn his way to God's love, legalistically following every rule and zealously forcing other people to do the same thing as him, hoping that by doing all the right things, God would love him. But when he learned about Jesus, this is the truth about Jesus, that God was willing to come to earth and give his own life as a sacrifice for our sins, that God loves us so much and nothing that we can do can make him love us more, and nothing that we can do can make him love us less. And that because of all that, we find out how much we matter to God. When Paul learned about that, he discovered grace. And grace brings transformation. Grace brings transformation because it means that God will forgive us. What is grace? Grace, uh, you can define it a lot of different ways. This is the way I want to kind of put it in your mind today. Grace is essentially this, receiving forgiveness or a pardon for something that you deserve to be punished for. It's when you're driving down the road, you get a speeding ticket. I mean, you get pulled over for speeding, and the officer comes to your window, and she just lets you off with a warning. That's grace. Were you speeding? Yes. Were you caught dead to rights? Yes. Did she have this speedometer thing, the radar, to prove it? Yes. But for whatever reason, she lets you go. That is grace. It's an unmerited, unearned gift. And it's something that's immensely uh, important when it comes to God's economy. Paul puts it very simply how this transformation works. He says it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says it a lot of places, but let's look in this one. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. This transformation happens in an instant in the mind of God. He goes, if you will put your faith in Jesus, you can have my grace, you can have my forgiveness, you can have my pardon. You already had my love, but now you get to experience what it's like when you let my love in. When you encounter Jesus' grace and forgiveness, you're transformed. He makes you new, a restart, a reboot, a do-over, a clean slate, Look, I'm telling you, there have been a lot of days where I just needed one of those. God's word says his mercies are new every morning. You can wake up every day once you give your life to Jesus and say, look, I just, I need a redo right now, halfway through the day. It's lunchtime and you got off on the wrong side of the bed and it's halfway through and you're like, okay, I need to get back on where God wants me with my life. Listen, if you've never done what Paul did, confessed your faith in Jesus and, and been obedient in baptism, I want you to know that's a gift that's still waiting for you. It's free. You can't earn it. Not enough gold stars for being at church is going to get it for you. Just the simple act of saying, Jesus, I want it. And I'm going to live for it. I'm going to be obedient to you. I think there are some things that are holdups for us when we want to turn to God. Uh, when we want to talk about grace, it's, it's, it's good to philosophically talk about it, but there are holdups, I know, in my life and in your life, and they kind of fall in two categories. It's really cool that Paul's story is our story today because I think it really lines up these two categories. The things that make us resistant to God's love kind of fall into two categories. The first one is this. Um, we want God's love, so we've decided that we're going to do everything in our power to earn God's love. And that's just what I call a checklist mentality. It's when you talk to somebody 
and they're talking to you about your faith, maybe, maybe if, if you are a Christian and you're talking about heaven and you're talking about forever and you're talking about Jesus and your friend says, listen, I just don't think all that's necessary because I'm a good person. I've done good things. I've never killed anybody. I pay my taxes. I don't kick the dog, right? That's the life Paul was living. By the law, he was a good person. You know why he was persecuting Christians? Because in his mind, that was what the law required. But he learned that that just isn't enough. Being good enough isn't enough because it's not about us being good enough. It's our sin that separates us from God. But it's his love that crosses that gap and says, I, I, I want you back if you have me. So that's the one side of the struggle, the, the dilemma. The other side is this. This is the place that a lot of us find ourselves. I've just been too bad. I've just made too many mistakes. I just don't know how God could ever forgive me. Can I just, can I just introduce you to my friend Paul? Dude was a scumbag murderer. Like maybe he thought he was doing this thing, but really he was just a terrorist. He was dragging parents out of their homes while children were screaming like, no, don't do it. Like this is, and odds are you haven't done anything that bad. But if you have, it doesn't matter to God's grace. The question is, what are you going to do from here on out? And so if either of those have been roadblocks for you, I want you to look at Paul's life and say how, see how God can make it new. A new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. Transformation. God brings God's love brings us grace through Jesus. And that's the message of the book of Acts. It's the message of the transformation of Saul to the leader that we call Paul. And it's the message that God has used to spark a movement around the world that is changing lives, it's changing families, it's changing neighborhoods, it's changing communities, it's changing cities. It's the love of God. It's his grace that we receive because of Jesus. You know, as we wrap up, uh, I, I want to talk about transformation a little bit. Because it, it's kind of, it can be heady and philosophical. And you can say, cool, I now know a theological thing, grace. But, like, where do you hang that on your wall when you get home? Like, that, it, that's not always super practical. And so what, what I want to talk about is kind of, there are maybe two phases of transformation that we can kind of get through quickly. The first one is this. We already talked about it. It's what I want to call, like, a, an instant transformation. In the mind of God, when we turn our life over to Jesus and we decide, I'm going to do my best to live for him, I'm going to accept him, I'm going to be obedient to him in baptism, I'm going to do my best to follow, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to just, I'm going to give my, give my life to Jesus. Like, at that point, in God's mind, if there were a file with, like, your face on it, on one side, and he's like, mm, nope. And then in that moment, he's like, I'm going to move the file to this file cabinet. Yep, they're good. Like, there's this instant transformation, and sometimes... Sometimes, though, that's not real comforting because we're like, yeah, but have you seen my life? It's kind of a wreck right now. Like, I'm really still trying to get things straight. Like, where does real transformation happen? So I want to talk about the second kind of transformation. It's that transformation that is recognizable, that maybe the people in your life can see, or maybe that you can begin to feel. This cooler thing happens. Not only is there a transformation on the spiritual level, this instant level, but as you learn to walk in the way that Jesus walked and follow his teachings and live the way that he encouraged us to live as we learn to really be followers of Jesus not just converts but day by day step by step followers of Jesus we begin to change parts about us begin to change because the book of Romans in chapter 12 it says that we have our mind renewed our mind becomes renewed by the power of God day by day it's not instant some of you guys are 20, 30 years into your Christianity, and you're like, yes, yeah, not instant. But let me ask you a question. Are you different today than you were before? Has God been transforming you day by day, day by day, day by day? When you learn to put God's two greatest commandments into practice, love God and love your neighbor, something will happen 
in you and through you. Transformation starts to happen so that other people can see it. The bitterness that used to consume you transforms into a forgiving attitude. The jealousy that might be eating you up right now will slowly transform into contentment. The dirty thoughts, the temptations, the immoral and evil things that kind of sit right about here in your mind, I think a lot of us are there. We begin to develop a different taste for life. And those things just are less and less appealing. I just don't want that anymore. It's transformation. And before long, you find yourself going, no. I'm going to tell you this. Later, you say, I'm not even interested. But it's a step-by-step, day-by-day transformation because you're living in love of Jesus. And you're learning to walk in his footsteps and do the things that he's asked you to do. Jesus transforms selfish people into giving people, foolish people into wise people. Man, I've seen that. That's crazy. <laughs> you ever met some foolish people? Man, let Jesus get a hold of their tail. They straighten up. It takes some time. He transforms brokenness into wholeness. That's transformation. That's why the change in Paul. In the story of Paul is the story of every person who will put their faith in Jesus. Jesus will change you if you will let him. Don't let that scare you. Because the change is good. It's real good. I've experienced it in my life, and I love watching it in the lives of my friends. Many of you sitting right here. I'm like, man, you guys blow me away. You're so inspirational to me as I watch what Jesus does in your life. So how awesome would it be for you to go to your next class reunion and someone to say, I mean, you're different. Something's different about you. You've changed, and you get to say, man, I met Jesus. I've been transformed Let me tell you all about it. And you don't have to wait 10 years. I hope that it's beginning to happen in you right now. I hope that in this community we begin to see it right in each other's faces, that in the small groups that you're meeting in and the people that you work with and and the people that you just run into on a daily basis, that people are like, you know, I used to hate you because you were a jerk. What what happened? (laughs) That's actually my story, true story. If you've been thinking about becoming a Christian, um, I I got a question for you. What other questions do you have? It's, It's legitimate. Do you have other questions? Will you come talk to somebody today about your question? Like, come see me, and I'd love to um, point you to somebody that you might have coffee with, or, or maybe we can find some time to talk. And let's just go through your questions. Because God can transform you because of Jesus through his grace. Maybe today's your day. Yeah, I'm pumped to share right now that uh, today um, I'll be down uh, at Riceville Beach uh, at the... Um, I forgot again, Johnny Mercer Pier uh, on Riceville Beach at 2.30 because we're having a baptism today. Um, And I'm excited, yeah. Um, uh, Jake Dalton, who who played piano this morning, he's been following Jesus for a long time. Um, But as he's been reading through the Bible on his own recently, he's like, you know, I'm looking at the book of Acts and it says if I'm going to do this, I should get baptized. So that's what he's doing. He's he's like, I want to be obedient. But he understands that it's God's grace. It has transformed him. And so if you want to come join us out there, and I'm telling you that because of this. Maybe you're on the fence, and you're like, man, I've really been thinking about this Jesus thing. Come on out, man. The water's cold. We'll be in there, and we will baptize you today. Or we'll find a warm place for you. Uh, Or maybe you just need to dig in and study some more. Um, You know, there are a lot of reasons to consider living for Jesus. There are. There are a lot. But for me, the greatest evidence of Jesus' power in people's life is to witness the transformation that happens. Transformation happens because God's love gives us grace through Jesus. I want to pray for you. God, we love you, and it is so good to be in your grace and your love. And as we uh, spend some time together today, just in your word and singing songs,
to you and about you. And, and as our kids are in the back of this, this building right now, um, I pray that we can be a community full of grace. And that we don't have to walk around saying that we're a community of grace and people are like, are you sure? Because you, kind of, you kind of sound like a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> but instead, we can be a community of grace and people go, oh, that is a community of grace. I can tell because people's lives are being transformed. Continue to transform me every day and continue to work in the lives of everybody in this room. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.